Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome back to Startup from Scratch. This is episode number, I don't know what I'd be pretending to know if I, I don't know, four or five? Yeah. should know these things. <laughs> We're currently considering some rearrangement of episodes. Yeah. Uh, ordering anyway. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. at this moment in the world, uh, there's a lot happening. Uh, we are no longer just in a state of, of shelter in place from a global pandemic, but uh, we also uh, here in the United States have a lot of protesting and um, a, a general uh, re- renewal of focus on civil, civil rights, which is super important. Thankfully. Uh, yeah, long, long overdue. And this is part of why we're really reconsidering how we how we launch the episodes, the order that we do that, mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that we are delivering the best value in the best way and in the most relevant way that we can right now. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering why our audio quality is so great and why there's not weird delays, it's because Kennedy and I have finally met. And this is actually the first episode that we're recording in person. Whoop, whoop. And super pumped because I, if you've been listening, or if you've listened to our intro episode, I met Kennedy a few months back and haven't met her until now. And in that time, we've managed to start a podcast. And she actually hired me as the first employee at Banting. So a lot's happened. And it was definitely overdue. Meeting you is definitely overdue. And Coco is here. Silent yes. guest on the podcast, yep. as always. <laughs> He's the most consistent guest. Yes. Uh, beautiful as ever. And we're super excited today to talk about fundraising, which is something that you've been doing for the last few months and I've been wanting oh, yeah. to ask you about. <laughs> and I've been trying to stay quiet because and not ask you anything because I wanted to have all the magic revealed in this episode. So uh, with that being said, I mean, I don't even know where to start. Just so ban- you started banting last September um, and you finally got it to a point where you were ready to fundraise, which was around the time you joined On Deck, the fellowship we were doing together in San Francisco. And during your time at On Deck, you successfully managed to raise money, which is incredible, especially during the pandemic. Uh, so I think you probably have a lot of insight that could be super helpful for some people trying to fundraise right now and beyond. So take it away. <laughs> what was it like? Uh, and I mean, you you have a lot of cool stuff like advice on like how much people should raise, um, who you should be accepting, you know, money from how you should be vetting investors. These are all things that, you know, just totally spit out knowledge. I'm yeah. Here for it. I, and I think there's, I'm always kind of cautious that there's a lot of things that you can say that are super cliche and didn't mean anything to me, or maybe like I understood it academically, but I didn't know how to tangibly incorporate that information. Um, so for example, when we talk about vetting VCs, right, you know, you want to make sure that whoever is coming into your company, that you're, you're putting people on your cap table, that you want their influence because that's what you're giving them. You're giving them equity. They're giving them voting rights. That's influence into the company. And if you have a very specific view of, of the, the way that you're trying to build your entity and how you want that to mature over time, then you do need to vet it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but what that meant was hard because, you know, by the time you go out to fundraise, it's also, you need money. And there's like this really strong reality where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course I'd love to love my investors. I'd also love to be able to pay my bills. Yeah. And absolutely, it's very easy to, to kind of like get lost in that or, or just sort of be like, I, I don't, 
it, it, I think it was hard for me to realize that I actually did want to push investors to a no faster, for example, mm-hmm. kind of a lot of different things. Yeah. Well, actually, you br- bring up a really good point, which is what I think something that a lot of people think about. Um, and there's a lot of debate about this. Do you want to raise from, you know, just angels and bootstraps, or do you want to actually go the VC route? Mm-hmm. So what, what did you end up choosing? Mm-hmm. And, and this was your first round of fundraising too. So what were some of the considerations that you kind of thought about? Totally. Yeah. So we, we'd had, a, we had a little bit of angel investment previous to going out for this formal raise. Um, and I originally set out for this raise planning to raise from angels because the amount that I wanted to raise wasn't that high. And mm-hmm. so that really puts you into um, a certain bucket because for a VC firm, there's a certain amount of, they, they need to have a certain amount of equity for it to be worth their investment. Mm-hmm. And they, most of them have and fund sizes large enough that their investments need to be scaled accordingly. Mm-hmm. If you're running, you know, a hundred million dollar fund, you probably don't write a lot of small checks, mm-hmm. um, especially not checks that are down in the you know sub sub five hundred thousand dollar range because yeah. it's not it's not felt to be a good trade off of time and allocation of those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's there's no hard rules to that, but but in my case, I, I set out thinking to raise from angels. What ended up happening is very quickly got a lot of positive feedback and traction from um, pre seed funds. Mm-hmm. Um, despite being pre-seed, most of them still wanted to see a launch at place, especially because we are a software, mm-hmm. uh, enabled platform. Mm-hmm. And, and so that put us in this weird spot where there was tons of interest, but because we were still pre-launch, mm-hmm. it wasn't the right timing. And mm-hmm. so very quickly I transitioned my thinking on it to say, okay, I actually am going to lower how much I'm trying to raise right now because there's very clear demand with very well-defined metrics that I can see how to achieve those. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually going to raise less now, close out fundraising faster Mm -hmm. and use that just to get me to the point where I can then go back and do this post-launch fundraise. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think embedded in that, there's always this question of how much to raise. Yeah. And of course, everybody has like a different philosophy of it because uh, some people say raise as much as you can Mm -hmm. so that you have the funds on hand. Some people say, only raise to the penny what you need. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, then the risk on either side of that is if you raise more than you need, it's easier to overspend. Uh, if you don't, if you raise only exactly as much as you need, something comes up and now it falls short and now yeah. you need a bridge round and that's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my case, I, I really tried to first figure out what was that minimum amount that I needed? What was a rational buffer to put on that? Um, and to move from there. The other piece that comes in is, especially when you're really early phase, there's always this question of valuation, because mm-hmm. if you're very early, then there's more risk. It's less proven what you're, what you're actually going to create in value. Mm-hmm. So if you try to raise a lot of money really early, you probably give up a lot of equity in yeah. return. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does need, you do need to think about it strategically and think about, is that the right amount of equity for me to give up at this time? Mm-hmm. You know? And so like for me right now with Banting, you know, is, is investment amount X worth equity amount Y? Um, and, and does it get me where I need to be? The other thing, you know, the flip side to that is we always talk about don't give away too much equity, but sometimes you have to think about what, what, how can your valuation or your company be Think about it as your company more than valuation. What can you, what is your company being enabled to become with that investment? Um, and sometimes I think we get really caught up in worrying about, you know, this, this percent of equity 
instead of saying, well, maybe it was worth giving up an extra 2% to have this particular group of investors on board at this time. Mm-hmm. Because the value add is just worth it. Yeah. Maybe this multiplies my likelihood of reaching successfully that next race. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes an important question too. Um, so you, you raised from angels this first round. I actually, no, I, I was planning to raise from angels. Okay. I ultimately did end up, uh, <laughs> uh, taking an investment from a, a, a VC. Firm. I didn't know this, <laughs> I didn't know this, which is crazy. Yeah. We've avoided talking about yes, it so much. <laughs> so this is so exciting for me to finally know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so Banting is now proudly part of the Mucker family. Uh, Mucker awesome. is based out of Los Angeles. Um, they have uh, a number of other really interesting companies in their portfolio. And it was actually part of my excitement to work with them came as I was meeting with other founders that have worked with them before. Um, because not only did that, did that kind of validate what, what I suspected my relationship with them might be and say, okay, no, this, my gut instinct is right. It's good to get that validation. Mm -hmm. But the other thing, um, that I really liked was as I learned more about those companies, mm-hmm. I really respected what those companies were building. And I like being part of that. I like having access to other people building companies from a similar ethos as mm-hmm. my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this particular case, some of the features that I'm referring to are that, uh, you know, Banting focuses on uh, being a cost, a low cost solution for mm-hmm. people. And so much of the startup world is really focused on affluent markets with high disposable income because it's easier to, you know, then you raise the price of the product as much as the market will bear. And that's how you, you optimize, yeah. uh, you know, make, make tons of money. So it makes sense why that's a common thing in the startup world, but it ignores that there's huge value that can come from, from the broader mass market. Yeah. And that's something that I felt like Mucker really understood on a really fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And all of the founders that I spoke to really affirmed that uh, Mucker not not only understood their vision, but really supported it. Mm-hmm. And their focus was how, how do we build, how do we help you make this as strong of a business as possible mm-hmm. so that you achieve that, that vision? Yeah. Um, it's not hyper growth, high ROIs at first. It's more about the vision that you see for your company. And- yeah. I mean, they, they want you to be in a hyper growth market. Mm-hmm. They, there needs to be a large market there. And there needs to be a reasonable, realistic way to get there. Mm-hmm. They, this is definitely still a focus on things that can be venture scalable. Uh, but to your point, yes, it's about this is the vision. And now we're going to make sure that you don't make the the mistakes that are very easy to make around things like unit economics, um, around is your business model as strong and robust as possible and focusing on how do you make this super strong business mm-hmm. so that you actually make it to achieving that, that mm-hmm. vision. Because what happens very easily is that... Um, you know, the numbers might look like they work out, but what you realize is that it doesn't actually scale um, or that you were so focused on the vision that maybe, maybe even though you wanted to be low cost, maybe your prices actually had to be higher for this business to survive in the long run. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, they, they want to help kind of be there and, and support through that process. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you bring up a really good point of how do you vet VCs, especially if you are going to go with that route. Um, and I think one thing that you mentioned is, you know, when they're doing a lot of, they're talking to you, you know, a ton and they're getting to know you and they are going to talk to people who refer to you and and really do their work there before they invest. But I think what a lot of people don't talk about is that also is a two way street. It should be. Yeah. It should be. You should also be talking to people that they're investing in and how 
these other founders feel about them as a as a venture capital firm. 100%. Which is really great. And I feel like you do a really great job of that, which has been really great to watch. That's one thing I didn't know <laughs> is yeah. that you do do your vetting, which is really great. Um, and, and that was something that I had to figure out a little bit how to do here because we are under a shelter in place. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, I guess the shelter in place orders are, are, are now lifted more, but there there's still this very real requirement for social distancing. I do have a background that's in healthcare and medicine. And so it's important to me to be pandemic safe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also important to me to, if at all possible, meet these people uh, before before committing. But one of the, so one of the things that was so important to me was, you know, can I figure out a way to meet them? And so uh, I was able to work out an opportunity where we met outdoors, uh, staying six feet apart, mm-hmm. um, which it, it is a little bit of a funny sensation of like, you know, you're walking up to meet somebody and then you both abruptly stop while mm-hmm. you're still, you know, several feet apart from each other. And then you find, you know, a, a railing to lean on and you, you stand there and talk um, for 30, 40 minutes and, mm-hmm. and have a conversation. But it was really valuable to me to get to do that. I'm a very people person. I like to connect with people. Yeah. Um, and I, I personally got a lot of value out of that conversation and, mm-hmm. and those learnings. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that was one thing that was important to me. But to be honest, like that, that last meeting was less of a pre-vetting, right? I'd already, I already had done the legwork of, um, was it worth that level of effort, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'd already spoken to other founders and done those pieces. There's a lot of vetting that needs to come very early on. And this is something that I didn't do enough of at first Mm -hmm. and that I learned uh, more or less the, the quote unquote hard way, which by the hard way, I mean, uh, chasing after people who said they wanted to move forward, but mm. realistically they weren't putting their their actions behind that. So something I really had to learn how to do was how, what does vetting somebody look like up front? Um, and, and I'd heard it described to me before as, you know, you want to try to push somebody to say no as quickly as possible. And I understand that. I also think that sometimes people use that as an excuse to um, to try to push conversations on their terms. So I think sometimes people get very caught up in this idea of what the momentum of the conversation has to be, uh, where you sort of feel like, oh, we should we should be replying within this timeline. And, and if it's going to go through, it's going to happen in this many days. Mm-hmm. That it's might like be dating, true. Though. It's it more is. like a natural, it has to ha- almost come a little bit more naturally, I think, where it's like, it's a good fit. It's like, we should keep talking. It is. And what people forget is there is power in time. Mm-hmm. And that power can work in your favor. It is not always in your favor to respond immediately to the terms that somebody sends you. It's mm-hmm. not always in your favor to immediately, you know, give a go ahead on something. And so to to say that it's only about pushing people to a no is not the the best way, I don't think. What you do need to do is push them to understand if they truly agree with your value proposition. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that was very important and that I learned very quickly with with Banting is that because we have this mission of wanting to be accessible and affordable to as many people as possible, uh, I did once have an investor uh, say to me, the, the, the economics make sense. I understand the business model, but I don't know why you don't just double the price because mm-hmm. you would still save people a lot of money. And that told me everything uh, in terms of their understanding of what my true value proposition was mm-hmm. um, and, and the extent to which they don't understand who whose Banting's customers uh, mm-hmm. will be. 
And so that was one of those moments where very quickly I was not concerned any longer with what they thought about Banting. Of course, I want them to think great things about us mm -hmm. as a company. I want to have a great reputation. Uh, but I was not concerned with trying to appease them in any way because I don't want that influence in my company. So something that I started doing kind of to try to target towards that is on the very first call, I would make it eminently clear that my vision of this mm. and the value proposition of Banting is about creating value for people. Mm -hmm. And Banting's business model is intentionally structured so that Banting is successful only if we are doing a great job of helping lots of people. Mm -hmm. So that, and that, that's all baked into this, this mission of what we're trying to do and making that really clear to investors up front was important to me. And it also allowed me to then gauge their response. Mm -hmm. In some cases they'd go, yeah, I know. Okay. That's fine. Oh. Which didn't really feel like you really got it. Whereas other people said, yeah, I know you, you have to keep things as, as low and lean as possible to, to create as much value as possible, but there's still a very successful business here. Mm -hmm. And those two things sound very similar, but they actually mean very different things as conversations progress, mm -hmm. I found. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I started explaining to people, and when people ask me, what are you looking for an investor? So uh, sometimes you're looking for investors because you need money in your company. Sometimes you want an investor because somebody has a certain skill set or network, and you want them to have, you want their help, and you want them to have skin in the game of your company. And you mm -hmm. do that through equity and through exchanging funds for equity. And now they have a reason to give you their time and attention. Mm -hmm. And so at first I thought that I wanted to find investors with the best networks because I needed the best, strongest network to help me make this happen. What I realized is that the skill sets that I need, any well-developed network should have people with these skill sets. And so that was not actually my criteria. My criteria is who's motivated to solve these problems with me. Who, who has a network of people that want to spend their time and to spend their social and political capital on helping Banting to be successful? And that's mm -hmm. what I was actually looking for. And it wasn't until I, I truly understood my own answer to that question of what one investor, what are you looking for in an investor? Because investors will ask you that question. And it was only when I really understood my answer to it that I could feel the tone of conversations changing. Because now I was actually giving better information for that two-way vetting. Again, mm -hmm. I was helping them to vet me. Mm -hmm. And I was telling them what I needed, what questions I needed them to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. And I didn't need them to just ask questions about my financial model. Uh, I needed them to ask the questions of, is this a worthwhile problem to solve that mm -hmm. I want to prioritize my time on? Um, and so that that became a valuable piece. And and certainly you can see that again with different styles of, of investors. And that, that was one of the things, again, that I really spoke to me about Mucker is they mm -hmm. do want to work with uh, the company. They work closely with you. And it's to make that become a success. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And I think I, I don't I've heard you say this story. I, I'm not necessarily sure what context it falls into but I think when you do find people who really do care about the mission they will introduce you to everyone they know that they think can help you and they will vouch for you and if they know you need something if they have a potential solution you'll know about it and that kind of support I think is also incredible yeah 100 percent. I, I actually kind of broke like a classic rule which is that you know, typically when you're getting intros to other investors, you want it to be not just a warm intro, but ideally that somebody who's invested in you makes the intro. And sometimes it can be a risk if somebody passed on investing in you, but they're still making intros for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, why it, do you not invest then? It's, yeah, it can send right. a weird social signal, mm -hmm. uh, but not always. Uh, and in my case, the, you know, 
there was an investor that I spoke to that was very, very supportive, very enthusiastic about banting. And although they uh, individually chose not to invest, they did continue to make very high quality introductions. Um, and that is ultimately how I, I wound up with an investment was, was through this, an intro that it, according to classic thinking shouldn't have been a great intro, but it actually was uh, because it turns out that they do know each other well and there is that extra value. I do want to talk about value proposition because how do you, and I, and I think you've touched upon this a little bit. I just wonder if there's anything else that you wanted to mention because I, I feel like the first pitch that you give to an investor looks so different from, you know, as the process goes along and you give your second, third, fourth, 10th pitch, right? So Mm -hmm. how has that process changed for you? What did you find important to mention when talking to investors? Mm -hmm. And um, besides obviously them understanding the value proposition, what are maybe some some other things that you thought were worth mentioning? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, value proposition is definitely something you're always negotiating. And it that can be one of the challenges as a founder when you go out to start pitching is that you sort of have to put on, you have to put on your investor hat and understand that value proposition. Um, But a lot of how you communicate that, the reason why you hear and read so many different pieces of conflicting advice from successful people is because the truth is this is a form of communication Mm -hmm. and we communicate differently as individuals and we, we must be authentic to ourselves and our communication and, and that therefore our style must be different. Mm. And so for me, it was this effort of figuring out. So for example, there's a lot of people that debate whether or not to send a pitch deck ahead of time. Do you send it as a PDF? Do you send it as a dachshund, mm. right? These are, there's all these layers because, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to get so much, uh, you know, you'll get data back if you send it as a link, but you know, it, it at the same time, when I'm the person receiving mm-hmm. it as a link, it drives me crazy. And I actually feel like I'm being spied on the whole time I look at those decks. And so to be honest, I flip through them very quickly and anything I'm interested in, I take a screenshot of and go back and stare at because <laughs> I don't like feeling spied on. And I got to be yeah. honest, I'm convinced I'm not the only one. Maybe I am. But because that's something that I don't like as a process, I'm not going to do it that way because I don't really, my style and as a just individual personality mm-hmm. is not to sit here and try to hide all the, all the juicy details. Um, and so there's a basic set of questions that every investor is going to want to ask you. I'm going to want to know. I put the answers to that in my pitch deck and mm-hmm. I send it out when we're in the process of scheduling the meeting. Um, because I don't really want to sit there spending the time mm-hmm. when I'm finally on the phone with you. I don't really want to be discussing is my market size large enough. Mm-hmm. I want you to already figure that out for yourself because mm-hmm. I find that conversation incredibly uninteresting. And again, in the case of Banting, it's not difficult to understand the market size yeah. and it is very large. You might be in a space where the market doesn't exist today. Mm-hmm. And then you'd probably do have to spend time in conversation explaining why the market exists. Right. So there's there's this combination of like, who are you as a person? How do you communicate that? And then what's your company and what is what do you need to explain about your company? And again, this is where you get so much like confusing, conflicting advice back. One thing I noticed also with like trying to explore how to best communicate my value proposition is the difference in getting feedback from investors versus fellow founders. And it's good to get some feedback from fellow founders, but always keep in mind that they are going to have whatever they've gotten pushback on in the past, whatever lessons they learned the hard way, that's what they're going to fixate on when they look at your deck because that's what they've had to fixate on to improve their own. That's a totally subjective problem. 
it's a completely subjective problem and it's often completely inaccurate to what you're actually doing, right? I had people tell me that I needed, I had fellow founders tell me that I had to add so many extra things in the financial section of my deck. But at the exact same time, the investors gave me feedback that I could actually merge those slides down to a single slide, that oh. they actually didn't need more information there because okay. the parts that they had questions about were clearly answered. And the reason they wanted all of that extra detail from this other person is because they had very specific questions about their business model mm, and their market. Okay. And they, but it's, it's easier to say, I want these details on financials because that feels like a concrete, tangible piece of information. When those investors probably should have been telling those other founders, I don't understand this part of your business model, right? And so sometimes there's also the fact that the feedback we get is sometimes the feedback that's easy for somebody to give us and not always the best one. And then so when you start taking it kind of through through a game of telephone, it just gets very convoluted. So I, I think that was something that within the value proposition scoping, I had to be very mindful that I had to be confident with what my value proposition for Banting was. And I had to be comfortable with the fact that that was going to sound and look different from other people's. And I think as I gained comfort with that, I actually took the liberty of doing a few other things a little bit more differently from the standard advice that I generally was seeing. Um, because I realized that was also a tool for being memorable, a tool for highlighting certain things, right? So, so uh, there's a, a quote from one of the Dalai Lama's, I want to say it was the 13th, but I could be totally wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, it, it, it's to the effect of uh, know the rules well so you can break them effectively. And I've always loved that because you should know the rules, you should know how to work within them, but you should also know how to consciously break the rules sometimes when when it's appropriate to do so. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that that premise is actually very timely right now. Protests are that is you, you break the rules because you have to break them effectively sometimes because the rules aren't right. Um, sometimes it doesn't have to be nearly so extreme or value driven. Um, sometimes with a company, uh, you know, I've I've actually my final deck that I ended up fundraising and raising for with Banting. I never once delivered it as a pitch. Mm. I sent the deck ahead of time. I to this day have not gone through and delivered that pitch. Wow. I've had conversations around it, mm. but that was, again, a very conscious choice where I said, you know, I just don't actually think it's very interesting mm. for me to summarize slides to you. I know what's the interesting conversation mm. here, and I don't really want to be distracted spending two thirds of the time talking mm. about things we don't really need to be discussing. Yeah. Because if you have a question, you can send me that question by email and it's a two sentence response. Let's not waste valuable time in person on that. that. I love that. Yeah, I think... I think sometimes when you, and, and I mean, I, again, not putting words in any, in anyone's mouth, but when you don't know exactly what you're building and you don't have a very concrete plan for it, sometimes all you can talk about is like exactly what you put on those slides mm -hmm. instead of having those more nuanced conversations. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, and, and to try to make it, uh, cause all of that's very vague. So to try to be specific about what I mean there. So I always sent my deck ahead of time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I never assumed that anybody had looked at it before the call, right? Don't, some people will have studied it in depth. Some mm -hmm. people do not want to study a deck in advance mm -hmm. and it's a very conscious choice that they don't. Sometimes your call before ran late and you just didn't have time to glance through it, mm -hmm. right? Like there's anything can happen. But so what I did instead is I, I would open up a call and, you know, you always want to start off this first phone call. It's meeting somebody. They're going to want to learn a little bit more about you. They don't know you yet. So I, I made it made a point, though, of figuring out how do I describe my my own history, my own path that makes it very obvious what my mission and goals of Banting are so that by the time I'm talking about Banting, you already actually know 
why I'm building this company. It's mm. obvious from the other things you now know about me. So I would open up the call, explain, you know, my background and take that, that narrative of the story of Kennedy all the way up to the founding of Banting and then to where we are today. And, and from there, um, you know, summarize within that, then now I've summarized Banting, I've, I've summarized our value proposition. I've made sure that as I was discussing it, that I mentioned numbers, like how many people take insulin every day. So you're, you're getting all of this information, even though I'm not reading it off of a slide to you. And then at the end of that, people almost always have questions, mm. right? And they know what information they're looking for. And because I've already given them that high level summary of what the deck contains, certain specific answers are in the deck, but they're welcome to ask me right then and I can answer it for them, right? Or oftentimes they pull it up and see it. Uh, but that was one really like big piece of, of how I tried to bridge that gap. Um, and in cases where people had like a really specific question to something, you can still say that's on slide eight of the deck. Or, oh, you're, you know, there's there's a, a link to resources on this topic on slide 11, right? So you you can still take advantage of the fact that you've built this resource mm -hmm. document, but, but you can treat it as a resource document. It doesn't have to be your commercial. Yeah, that, yeah, that very well said. I love it. <laughs> awesome. This is great. I feel like super helpful for, um, I think, anyone raising to get to know all of this, because I think you've done a really great job with with your raising, although I've been like watching from far, <laughs> I know you've done great. And I, and I know people are excited to invest in you, uh, post launch, which is happening soon. I don't know if you have a launch date for everybody or not. <laughs> uh, we're, we're holding that those details close, but, but ex expect to see us live to the wild public, uh, by, by July. Awesome. Yeah. Woo -woo. Okay. Um, last question that I want to spend just a few minutes on you've, You've had this really interesting tip. Maybe you can tell everyone what the name of the book is, um, but raising money and why you won't raise around number yes. of money. <laughs> so a lot of people have read this book. If you haven't, I highly recommend read it or listen to it on Audible. Um, Never Split the Difference is the name of the book. Um, and it, it really gets into negotiation. But what I like about the book is that it recognizes that negotiation is as much about understanding it's about understanding both sides value proposition to find out how, where, where is there a, a incentive aligned agreement? What is each person's motivation? What is each person's incentive? And then what is the flexibility for a match? And I think it's really important um, when you're in a situation like fundraising, it's okay to say it's not a match and you need to be able to communicate that politely, but it's okay to say, I don't think we're a great fit. Or, you know, I, I don't think that this is quite what I'm looking to bring into the company. But one of the tips from that uh, book does come around this topic of um, when you're when you're negotiating around uh, with numbers, especially with money, never use a round number because a number that you round to, even if that is the specific number, like you actually, in fact, need exactly three million dollars to the penny doesn't sound real. It mm -hmm. sounds like you need maybe somewhere above two five. <laughs> Right. And yeah. 3 million sounds like a nice number. Yeah. So something that's really valuable to do just from a psychological perspective is, is to have a number that's not a, a beautiful number per se, but mm -hmm. then it is memorable. Um, and then there's other things that you can consider depending on the specific situation. Like, do you intentionally want to set an extreme anchor number that's like much higher than what you're actually looking for? Again, this is a stylistic choice. Personally, that's not what I wanted to do mm -hmm. here. 
Um, I want it to be that when I tell you I need this amount, I need that amount. Uh, also because that is how I approach fundraising. And mm -hmm. some investors, you know, they want to invest in companies that have the same ethos around uh, how you fundraise as they do. And that's part of what you're finding a match for. Um, so yeah, in my case, uh, I'll always pick a specific number. So you'll never see me raise, you know, $3 million or $10 million. Um, but I would totally raise $10.3 million. Uh, I would, I would really love an $11.7 million raise. Right. <laughs> um, and it sounds so silly. And my co-founder Parm laughed so hard when I first told him this, mm -hmm. uh, the first time we were setting up to fundraise, he was like, what? Why? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And, and as we, as we've gone through, uh, the last several months of the company, He's a total convert on, mm. on the idea now because it is true. And, and he started to realize in day-to-day -day life, you see that as well. Mm. Um, you know, look, when you go to buy a product that's priced $19.99, like, do you really think there's any specificity behind that pricing? No. But when you see something that's priced $17.54, you're like, oh, okay. So it, it's, uh, it's human psychology, but I, I think that I think that we ignore human psychology too much mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. I think we build companies with cultures that, that act like humans are robots and that's wrong. Uh, and to the same extent and reason that that's wrong when you're going out and in this external environment saying, this is what I need for my company. You want people to believe that that's what you need for your company. And a really great tool to do that is to give a be very specific. specific number and, and to be able to say why you need it. that number. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been amazing. Totally. I've been, now I can actually ask you more questions as they come up off record. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. And again, don't know when this will be airing, but hopefully um, all of you are being safe and uh, still sheltering as necessary and just taking care of each other and being kind. So thank you. Yes. Kennedy McDaniel. And <laughs> we'll talk to you guys soon. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Can't wait to hear from y'all.